0: In the series we've been as we've been going through the book of James, we've been talking about the fact that James talks to us about a life of faith and that's a life of faith that goes to work. The faith works itself out in us and that is going to be right at the heart of what James is talking to us about this morning. So this morning we're going to be in James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. I'll pray for us and we'll get down to it. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before You this morning, as always, needing to hear Your Word. Maybe we come this morning very eager to hear that Word and receptive to it. Or maybe we come this morning very distracted, or very discouraged. We've been going through the book of James, who speaks so much about trials, and maybe for many of us it feels today the trials of life are on the verge of crushing us. Would You speak to us this morning? Would you encourage and lift up the downcast? Or would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you be quick to remind us of the goodness of the gospel? Would you bring comfort and healing and help? Would you do your work in us through your word, by your Spirit? It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So now we're going to give attention to it. <clears throat> James brings up an incredibly important point, and if you've been here for this series, he, got, he, he he picks up really where he, he began to go in chapter 1, when he talks about being not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so the question he brings up this morning is, how can we know if our faith, if you proclaim faith in Jesus, how can you know if your faith is genuine? Or as James might put it, how do you know if it's a if it's a living faith? If it's vibrant, or if it's dead and useless? <clears throat> James thought this was An incredibly important thing for us to look at, and he brings it up for us, and we're going to see this idea of a genuine or living faith versus a dead faith. He talks first about the reality of a dead faith—that there is such thing as a faith that James says is dead. Talk about the symptoms of a dead faith, and then we're going to talk about the fruit of a genuine faith. Okay, first the reality of a dead faith. Look at the kind of words. James uses throughout this passage when he's talking about the kind of faith that he has under the microscope for us this morning. He mentions it first in verse 17. He says, Also also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He goes on in verse twenty. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. And then back to it again in verse twenty six. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, throughout this passage, he wants us to hear something loud and clear, that there is such thing as a profession of faith that is in fact dead, it's useless, and it's lifeless. So what is a a dead faith? Well, James gives us a glimpse of that in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He says, that's the question on the table right here. He says, can that kind of faith, can a dead faith, can it really do what faith is supposed to do? Can it really save us? Can it really bring us into a right and restored relationship with God? Does it have any power to it? And he says, there's such a faith that's dead and doesn't save. Okay, now, if you uh, are familiar with the New Testament, you know, if you've you 've done some reading some of the, the letters of Paul than as, as many of you have, then you know as we read this passage that there for, for many of us there feels like this tension in the passage. And there would have felt that tension would have been felt by James's audience as well. And here it is, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in parts of the New Testament says things that are very clear about the fact that it is faith alone in the death and resurrection of Jesus that saves any of us. It says only through the work of Christ can any of us be made reconciled with God. Can any of us be saved? Okay, let me just give you two brief examples. Here's what Paul says in Galatians two sixteen. Yet we know that a person is justified, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then in Romans 3.28, he puts it this succinctly. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, now here's what James says. Verse 20, 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, James and Paul, are, are they reading different books of theology? Are they on different pages? You feel that sort of tension, right? Now, and it's important that we feel it. This is, this is an incredibly important question. How are we really made right with God? Now, some of you uh, may know if you've... Uh, may be familiar. In the Middle Ages, there was a group of uh, Christian scholars called the Scholastics, and they used to, they used to ask and try to answer some, some very obtuse questions, one of which was, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, right? That's not the kind of question that James is asking. Okay, He's not asking about this sort of hypothetical stuff out on the periphery. He's asking this question, how can we be made in right relationship with God? How are people saved? You know, is it by having faith in Christ, or is it by doing good stuff? Which one is it? And that's the tension that we feel on the surface of this question. Uh, and so, here we're going to take a brief look at sort of the different different contexts of Paul and James. Okay, so I need you to stay with me for a minute. This is this is sort of the theological heavy lifting for the morning. Uh, here's what's happening in Paul. Paul is addressing a group of people who are very tempted to believe by our faithful observance of God's law, he we will be made right with Him. This belief that we can somehow earn ourselves, we can we can we can um, we can follow God's law perfectly enough that He looks at us and says, "You know, you are in fact righteous and holy, and so I welcome you into relationship with Me. You have earned the grade." And Paul is concerned to tell people you can never earn the grade you can ever you can never live a life that lives up to the holiness of god that we are all desperately we are all desperately in need of him and paul hammers away at that time and again in his letters because he wants his people to know that it is only by faith in christ alone that we are saved okay now james is addressing a different audience And his audience, he may well be talking to people that have received some sort of warped version of what Paul is teaching, and they're walking away more like this. Look, we are saved by faith, and now it doesn't matter how I live my life. It doesn't have to have any connection with my life. It doesn't have to have any real fruit or bearing in my life because of this verbal declaration I'm making that, that I trust in Christ. And James is coming to these people and he says, No, 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 listen there is such thing as a false faith, a dead faith, something that masquerades as faith that is in fact not faith at all. Paul, when he speaks of, of being justified by faith, now that's sort of the 25 cent theological word, Paul is saying that we are justified in God's sight, that it's, the, the picture there is a courtroom. And he says that we are declared righteous by God. That we are declared to be Holy not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. So the judge saying, I'm choosing not to sentence you according to what you deserve, but I'm crediting to you the righteous life of another, of Jesus. Then when he looks at us because of Jesus, he says, you are accepted and holy and righteous because of what Christ has done for you. And it's this declaration. That's what it means uh, to be justified. Now, the Greek word for justify has, has a range of meanings, just like... The way we use the word justify as well. And that's what Paul is focusing on. But James is using another aspect of the word justify, which can mean to prove or to vindicate or to demonstrate. Now, we use the word justify that way too. Somebody makes an outrageous statement and you say, well, justify that. You know, prove that to me. Uh, when I was in college, sitting around the dorm room, a bunch of guys eventually turned to boasting somehow. And so my good friend, uh, one of my best friends in college, still one of my best friends, he was a, he was a championship wrestler in high school, great athlete. Uh, and he looked at me and he said, I had run track in high school, and he said, you know that I could beat you in a, in a 400, one, one lap around the track. I said, you're crazy. There's no way you could beat me. I mean, you're a wrestler, but you're a little out of shape. And there's no way. So we go back and forth like this. It's about 10 o'clock at night. And finally, finally we got to the point where I just said, let's go. And he was like, what do you mean? We're going to the track right now. Let's go have a race. And so we did. Because what happens when people say something utterly ridiculous, you look at them and you say, justified. In other words, can you put your money where your mouth is? As a brief aside, he lost pitifully. But I wouldn't be telling you the story otherwise. But you see what I'm saying? You know, he makes this statement and, and, and the response is somehow you have to justify, you have to prove that that is true. And that is part of the phrase that the Greek word here of justify can mean. And when, so when James talks about justify, he is saying, when he says we are justified not simply by faith, and you could put in parentheses this sort of false dead faith, he says we're not justified by that. We are justified by a faith that gives birth to action, to real work. He says that we are justified not simply by making a a verbal profession, but genuine faith vindicates itself. Genuine faith proves itself, it demonstrates itself. He says genuine faith is inevitably going to lead to a life that reflects what God has done in your life. He's saying, and so when he says justify, he means something different than Paul. And in fact, both Paul... And James, if they were to sit down and have a conversation about it, would agree. Because we. Uh, excuse me. Paul says stuff like this in Ephesians 2. He says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James and Paul would both say that we are justified, that we are made declared righteous in, in God's sight through the work of Christ, and it is by faith. But that faith then works itself out in action. Here's um, how Dan Doriani, a pastor and, and writer, defines this idea of being justified by faith alone. He says, By faith alone we mean that the believer adds nothing, no works, in order to earn or gain God's favor. Good works are necessary, not a condition prior to salvation, but a consequence of following salvation. And he goes on and says, good works are necessary results of spiritual life. And if you mix up this idea of being a cause of salvation with the results of salvation, you will send your life in an utter tailspin. That's what Paul and James are trying to help us navigate between. Because if you think that it is our good things, our good works that ultimately save us, you're going to be forever anxious. You're going to be forever uncertain. Have I lived up to God's law today? Or you're going to pull the blinders down over yourself, right? And you're going to set a bar for yourself that is low enough for you to step over, but it doesn't have anything to do with God's bar. And you're going to say, look, I've lived up to this. I'm not going to think about all those other parts of my life, but I've lived up to my own little standards. And we are going to utterly delude ourselves. He says, he reminds us that faith turns to Christ in its utter need. And faith really does spill out in action. Uh, Philip Melanchthon was uh, Martin Luther in the Reformation, his, uh, kind of his right-hand man and successor. And, and you know, as you may know, one of, in the Reformation, one of the, one of the great Reformation slogans is that we are saved by faith alone, echoing these words of Paul's. But here's what Melanchthon says about this idea of faith alone. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. The faith is going to live itself out in a faithful life. So we get down to you know verse 24 of James, he says, You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What's he saying? A person is vindicated, he's shown to have true faith by the works as they play themselves out in life. God comes to us in our utter need, in our in our sin, in our brokenness. But he does not simply leave us there. He comes to bring not only salvation the declaration of salvation but a life that is changed that it might actually reflect the holiness of god he comes to bring real change and that's what james is putting his finger on okay so the reality of a dead faith well how would you know if you have a dead faith okay the symptoms of a dead faith what does a dead false faith faith look like well he gives us two examples here um And the first comes in verses 15 and 16. If you were here last week, these are verses that we went into more in depth there. But we come back to them briefly this morning. Look what he says, verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What's he saying? A dead faith lacks a true love for others. Dead faith lacks a true love for others. And here's the example he gives. He says somebody comes to you in great physical need. And when you pat him on the back and say, you know, brother, sister, let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that you would provide food for this hungry person right here and some clothes for him. We love you, Jesus. Amen. See ya. Right? What does he say? He says, you you wish him well, but you don't do anything to actually meet his needs. He says, what kind of faith is that? James says, it's a dead faith. Because though it makes this profession, it doesn't really care. It doesn't really love. He says, a dead faith is one that does not spill out in love for others. Consequently, a, a live faith is one that does give itself. It does pour itself out in love for others. Another way we could say this, I'm sure... James would have said it this way if he had thought of it, but this is this is Valentine's Day love. Okay, you're going to be able to tell I'm not a big fan of Valentine's Day, to my wife's chagrin. Okay, but here's what happens so often in Valentine's Day. Let's say you're married, you give a, you give a card to your spouse, and it's, it's from Hallmark, and it's got sort of these canned phrases about how hey, you're the love of my life, I'd do anything for you, thank you for being with me. And then what happens the next morning? Do you, do you roll out of bed at 5 a.m. and make the coffee? Who's, who's making breakfast? Are you helping clean up? You know what I'm saying? Like that There's a faith, there's a love that says, I love you, and I'm not going to lift a finger to actually lift the burden for you. A Valentine's Day faith that maybe makes a declaration, but doesn't have substance behind it. And James says, I want more for you. Not a faith that simply makes its declaration, but a faith that actually does something. A faith that actually loves others, not only wishes them well, but does what God puts in your capability to bring care and help for others. Uh, and as we focused on last week, this plays out in deeds of mercy, meeting the physical needs for those who need it. That's one way it plays out. Okay, so dead faith, it lacks a love for others, but a dead faith also lacks a love for God, and that's what he gets into in verse 19. With, with sort of a bracing image, he says, "You believe," and he's he's addressing this person. You know, start at verse eighteen. This this someone, this sort of uh, you know hypothetical one who's bringing this argument that you know can't you have faith on the one hand for some and works for the other? And James is saying no. And he says here in verse nineteen, he says, "You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder." Okay, what's he saying? He says, "You believe that God is one, and you do well." James, James, remember, is speaking to a group of Jewish Christians, and they would know well Deuteronomy six, verse four, that says, "This, hear, O Israel: The Lord our God, the Lord is one." And this was uh, in the Old Testament a basic statement of faith in the one true God of Israel. There is one God. In other words, this is sort of the summary of good theology. And what does he say? He says you. You have good theology. He says, the demons have good theology too. And they shudder. He says, you know, in fact, the demons know more that is true about God than than you do. Uh, As one pastor I heard put it this way, he said, you know, the the demons have, have been to the best possible seminary. They have been in the presence of God in heaven itself. And they turned around and walked out. It says, the demons believe and shudder. They have true knowledge about God, but what does it lead them to? Only fear. Because they know something that is true, but they're in rebellion and they are out of relationship with God. So he says, another way you can know you have a dead faith is if you have good, good theology. But you, know, but you hear of God and it makes you shudder. Now how would that play out? Here are a couple of possible ways. Maybe you know a lot about God. But you know you aren't actually in relationship with Him. Maybe for you, good theology is a love and a passion and a hobby and an intellectual pursuit and a curiosity, but it does not lead you to the God that we speak of. That you know about Him, but you don't know Him. You might know your Bible really well, you might care about good theology, but maybe at the end of the day you know that everything you really know about God really leads you not to respond in love, but to shudder. Maybe it looks like this. Maybe you have a life that's really consumed with anxiety as you think about your relationship with God. By the end of the day, have I done enough today for God to really approve of me? You know, there's all this stuff in the Bible, like the Ten Commandments. I sure better live up to these, or God is going to drop the hammer on my life. When something bad happens to you in your life, is your first reaction this? What did I do to deserve this? Why is God punishing me for this? Do you hear the fear? That's what James is saying. It's possible to know some true things about God and what does it lead you to do? To shudder. To not be in real relationship with Him. It only leads you to fear. And James is not speaking about the appropriate kind of reverence and awe we are to have with God, have for God. But this kind of fear that drives us from Him. So he said a dead faith lacks a, good, lacks a true love for God as well as a love for people. Uh, Martin Luther before he uh, before he became a Christian, before he realized the goodness of God's mercy and grace for him in Jesus. He, for years, was um, a, an Augustinian monk, living in a monastery, leading a very religiously dedicated and um, austere life. And, and here's what he says, looking back on that time, at the point in which he read the Bible, and for the first time really understood that God comes and brings salvation to the those who fail. He says this, My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage Him. Therefore I did not love a just and angry God but rather hated and murmured against Him he said, supposedly to one of his confessors in that time, when asked about does he, does he love God, he says, love God, sometimes I hate Him. He knew a lot. He knew the Bible, much of it. But what did it lead him to? It led him to a fear, actually a hatred of God, a shuddering, and not to real belief. So James offers these two things up as symptoms of a dead faith, one that does not play out in real love for others. And one that does not play out in real love for our God. So he doesn't leave us there though. What does he turn us to next? The fruit of a genuine faith. What does it look like to have a genuine faith? And for James what he points us to is is a faith that plays itself out in love for God. That expresses itself in deeds of love towards God and towards others. And he gives us two examples from the Old Testament to sort of give us a picture of what does it mean to live this life of genuine faith. He talks about both Abraham and Rahab, these two radically different people in the Old Testament. Look with me first at Abraham, uh, beginning verse 21. He speaks about, he says, Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And he's going back to a story in Genesis chapter 22 when God, after God has taken this man Abraham out of a foreign land out of, out of a pagan religion and brings him to Canaan to the promised land. And he says I'm going to give this land to you and you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the whole earth is going to be blessed through you. Abraham becomes a very old man before he has any children at all, wondering how is God going to fulfill this promise. And finally, the child of promise that's given to him is, is his son Isaac. Okay, the promises are going to come through and be fulfilled through this child. And then in Genesis 22, God tells him to take this son, Abraham's over 100 years old, his one true child of promise, he says, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him. Genesis 22 tells a story about how Abraham does what God inexplicably calls him to do. And as literally as the knife is raised above Isaac, God stops him and provides a lamb as a sacrifice instead. And that's the, the scene that James focuses on. He says that in that moment, we see Abraham's faith justified, vindicated, proven. Because James immediately goes, in the next few verses, back to Genesis 15. When Abraham receives these promises of God, and and God says he looks at Abraham and sees his faith, and it's credited, it's counted to him as righteousness. That's what Paul picks up on Romans 4 when he says, Abraham was justified, made right with God through faith. And James says, that's right. He was brought into the Christian life. There, God makes his promises to him in Genesis 15. But then what does James say? He says that what happened in James in Genesis 15? That was fulfilled when Abraham took his son and was willing to sacrifice him. He said, Abraham's real salvation, real faith was vindicated, was demonstrated when Abraham said, God, I will do whatever you call me to do. When he took the thing that was most precious to him, and the very vehicle by which God was going to fulfill his promises. Abraham not understanding it and said, I love you enough, God, that I will follow you and do whatever you call me to do. And James says, that was a genuine faith. Because it spilled out in this life of love and of action towards his God. He said, that was the faith of Abraham. And what does Abraham get? Look with me at the end of verse... Twenty-three. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See what Abraham gets? He gets God. He gets intimacy of relationship with Him. And another way to, I think, put what James is giving us with Abraham is he says that a real and genuine faith plays out as we see and experience the depth of God's love. Not just Baldly forgiven, but brought into relationship. Here, a friend of God. It's like what Jesus says to His disciples uh, on the night when he, before He is going to be crucified. He says this to His disciples. He says, You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is saying the same thing. I brought you in as friends. You're no longer just simply servants. He says, let me show you the depth of God's love for us. You are my friend. that is what Abraham tasted from this genuine faith, a relationship with God that was deeper than maybe we would have guessed and deeper than maybe Abraham could have pegged, and deeper maybe than Jesus' disciples were expecting when He says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And when He looks at us, the fo- His followers, and says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. You are brought in to a faith, a genuine faith, and to a love that is deep. So he goes from Abraham, this well-respected hero of the faith in the Old Testament. Here is the founding father of God's people, respected in every way. And then he shifts to this incredibly different example in the Old Testament. He gives us a second example of the fruit of genuine faith, and he turns to Rahab. Okay, Rahab. This story is told in Joshua chapter two through six. God's people are on the verge of going into the Promised Land. Joshua is leading them, and they they must get through Jericho this incredible fortified city. So Joshua sends two spies, two messengers into the city undercover to scope out the place and, and this prostitute Rahab hides them in her house. And when the king's people, the king of Jericho, his people come looking for him, uh, she hides them, she sends them off in a different direction and then she helps the messengers get out of the city safe and sound. And the messengers say, we will spare you and your family because of, because of what you have done. So James goes to her. He says, Rahab had a faith that expressed itself in action. When Rahab's talking to the messengers that come, she says this. Um, She says, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She converts. She comes to faith. She says to the Israelite spies, Your God is the real God. And I am casting my lot with Him. I am stepping onto that side. I am going to, in fact, turn away from this city, this nationality that I'm a part of, and I'm going to turn to the one true and living God. And she puts her money where her mouth is. What does she do? She works alongside God's promises and purposes, and she protects God's messengers, and one day God, God's people rescue her in the destruction of Jericho. And Rahab doesn't simply drop out of the picture. Then, if you go into the um, to Matthew and read of the genealogy of Jesus, you would read that Rahab is one of the one of the ancestors of Jesus. That here, this foreigner would have been completely inexplicable to God's people. How could God put His favor on somebody who is outside of our people, yet she is brought in? She's a prostitute? How could God possibly use or put His love on someone in this kind of flagrant sin? How could He do that? Remember Jesus, the friend of prostitutes and sinners. And in that day and age, too, for James to say, let me not tell you not only about this great man of faith, let me tell you about this great woman of faith. James takes these two very different examples. It says, genuine faith works itself out in a response of love and of action, of loving God, of loving others. True faith do, does not absent itself from the world. It engages it. True faith does not nearly make merely make a verbal proclamation. You believe that God is one. It says it comes and brings real change. Real faith comes to bring real action of a response of love towards others and towards God. And when with Rahab, we see that that love that God calls us to is not only deep, but it is broad. The breadth of God's love. You can't be far enough on the outside that God cannot come and find you. You couldn't have gone to the ancient Near East and found a person less likely on the surface of things to be brought into God's people, then Rahab didn't stop God from bringing her. It says God's love is broad. And it is offered, the love of Jesus offered to those who are far off that we might be brought in. Okay, let me wrap it up just saying this. James's point is that there is a faith that is dead, but there is a faith that is real. And real faith does not somehow earn our salvation, does not somehow earn God's favor, but it, is, it works itself out of God's salvation of us. He comes and justifies us, saves us, and that brings a change. That over time, slowly, more slowly maybe than we'd like sometimes, God is working in His people a heart of love towards the needs of others and a heart of love in response to God. So James would ask us the question, is that happening in our lives? And if it is, and to the degree that it is, James would say, that is so beautiful and good. May it continue. If we look at ourselves and find that it is not, James would point us right to the very Jesus that this faith is in. There is real salvation for us in our sin and in our brokenness and in our failure and our lack of love as we cast ourselves on this Jesus. His grace, His goodness to us. When we look and if we have that grip on our heart that says, I do not know if this is me, then what do we do? We turn to this Jesus. The call is for you as well. We might be a people who know our God, who live lives of love and know the depth and the breadth of His love for us. That it would transform us. May it be true. Let's pray. Father, um, we come in and what in many ways is a complicated passage, lots of ins and outs of how this fits into the bigger piece of what You've given us in the New Testament. But Lord, we thank You that Your Word is reliable and trustworthy and true. And that You have given us that we this to us, that we might know that You give us salvation through Jesus, and that You mean for it to grow, You mean for it to express itself in the fruit of a life It gives itself in love to others and responds in love to you. Would you have your way with us? Father, if our hearts are cold, if we do not know you, would you come and convert and change us? And Father, if our hearts are cold because we've just been numb and we've been wandering away, there's real and genuine faith there, would you you fan it into flame? Lord, would You call us to more? Would You show us more the depth and breadth of Your love for us? Would You call us further on and deeper into the, to the mission of God that we might live lives that are spent in love for others and in love towards You? Would You warm us with the beautiful heat of the Gospel even this week, even this morning? And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.